1: This This,
3: this, is The Crossover, an NBA show hosted by Sports Illustrated's Chris Mannix and Howard Back. It's a whole new level for you and me, Chris, this relationship.
2: Like and subscribe for the best weekly NBA content these two are capable of. What does that mean? Could be the best duo ever. I don't see how you can beat that. Here they are,
1: Chris Mannix and Howard Back.
4: And we are back. Crossover NBA Podcast, Chris Mannix, and Howard Beck. And Howard, we are right around, I think, the two-year mark of doing this podcast. So, in that spirit, if you decide to leave the podcast tomorrow and go to another podcast, I will arrange for a video tribute when you come back to this podcast because... I was watching Nets-Celtics over the weekend, and I noted Brooklyn gave Blake Griffin a video tribute uh, when he returned. Blake Griffin, who spent two years in Brooklyn, well, it was kind of, I think, a year and a half, uh, played a total of 82 games with the Nets. Uh, if you want to break it down to minutes, 1,500 minutes. Uh, he I'm looking at some of his raw statistics right now. He scored, he uh, like took uh, 502 field goal attempts in that time. He, he did not play, he did not have a meaningful impact on the Brooklyn yet, Nets, yet the Nets saw it uh, justified to give him a video tribute. I, I, we goof around all the time about video tributes, Howard. That might have been rock bottom for me, right, right there, to see a Brooklyn a Blake Griffin video tribute
3: in Brooklyn. Well, let's just say that if I were to leave this podcast and then came back for a guest appearance or something, the least you could do is give me a video tribute. The least you could do. I, it's you know, I, 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 I would be touched. I feel like it's it's uh, it's only appropriate. But I will tell you, as you're mocking the Blake Griffin tribute, I was there for that that moment. It was very moving, very meaningful, very heartfelt. Um. The whole building, I think, was, was very emotional. Mm. That's not even the most ludicrous video tribute of the day because the Washington Wizards gave one to Thomas Bryant of the Lakers. <laughs> now, now, granted, Thomas Bryant had four years in Washington, whereas Blake Griffin only had two in Brooklyn. But Blake Griffin actually was a key part of a team that, of a Nets team that in the playoffs, for a moment, it looked like they might beat the Bucs. And make a run to the finals. He actually played a significant role on an important team, whereas Thomas Bryant, I don't mean to pick on him. And he had some injuries while he was there, but four completely forgettable seasons with the Wizards, including the last two in which he only played 37 games combined. So, um, yeah, uh, this goes back to my general feeling that we need rules on these things we need rules for what qualifies you for a video tribute and i think at minimum you have to have been part of something memorable something blake griffin barely barely makes it on the nets one thomas bryant with the wizards yeah I, I can't get there i'm sorry there there are
4: no rules for this it's the <laughs> wild west out there and i know there have been stories written about the video tribute some very good ones but I just really would like to know what goes into the thinking in the front offices of Brooklyn and Washington that I'll tell you what goes into
3: it I'll tell you what goes into it pandering that's what goes into yeah. it we need to make it look like we are the most player-friendly organization on earth we want the agents to remember we want the players to remember so that the next time we go to sign somebody they feel that much better about us by some tiny percentage point well it's the silly. the the screen grab of
4: Blake Griffin that was going around showed a a bemused Blake Griffin at seeing his face and a video yeah. tribute being thrown up on the yeah. jumbotron for him. But uh, we'll see. I'm sure we'll be talking about this uh, at some point when there's another
3: bizarre. Oh, there will be, be more. There'll be more. There will be one that they'll be get more absurd by the day. Yeah.
4: All right. On this episode, we are going to discuss the Pelicans as a potential contender in the West. Are they there yet? Uh, some dissension in the ranks in Atlanta between the head coach and the star player, and the ongoing debate about the best duo in the NBA. The twosome up in Boston. Are they the best in the league? Went to that as well. But, Howard, a lot of people, you know, begrudgingly on podcasts say they're going to talk about the Lakers. <laughs> I don't do it. I love talking about the Lakers. They're fascinating, <laughs> and people are interested. So... I'll talk about the Lakers every time they do something interesting. And the Lakers are doing something interesting right now that makes them worthy of leading off this episode of the show. The Lakers started the season at 2-10. Since then, they have won eight of their last ten. They are just a game out, as we record this, of the final play-in spot of the Western Conference. So they've made up quite a bit of ground. Anthony Davis is playing like an MVP, recently named the NBA's Player of the Week. He put up 99 points in back-to-back games against Milwaukee and Washington. Russell Westbrook, to his credit, settling in nicely to this sixth-man role. I was looking up some of the numbers. Since he uh, moved to the bench, he's shooting better than 34% from three. That's a great number for Russell Westbrook. That would be, I think, a career-high number for Russell Westbrook. Um, the defense over the last 10, 11 games has been a top 10 level defense. Now the flip side of the coin is that the Lakers have been racking up these wins and compiling these numbers largely against bad teams. The Milwaukee win, great one. By far the Lakers best win of the season. That was a game that the Bucks had Chris Middleton back for. So they were at or close to full strength for that game. Uh, and the Lakers still found a way to win behind 55 points. Uh, was it 49? One of the games. 44 points from Anthony Davis. Um, the rest of the schedule, though, not been great. They have three wins over San Antonio during this stretch. They beat up on the Wizards, who played without Bradley Beal for most of that game. So as we record this right now, Howard, do you consider the Lakers back in the contender mix,
3: or do you need to see more? I guess I have to answer your question with a question, Chris, which is contender for what exactly?
4: I would say a contender to make to advance past the first round.
3: Let's say that. Okay. Because when we normally when we say contender as shorthand, we mean contender for the championship, to which I would say, Are you freaking kidding me? Um no, because yeah, they're with, not. With
4: they're... ten with ten plays play in spots, I don't want to say are they a contender. Yeah. I mean you can be really mediocre and be a contender for a play and I would say, are they a contender to be a team that can
3: win a first-round series against a likely top-four team? Let's say a team that matters, right? A team that matters. You, if you're a, if you're a one round and out, you don't really matter that much. And if you're not making the playoffs at all, you obviously don't. So, are they a contender to be something significant? I, 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 I it's really jarring to think about where we were even two weeks ago versus where we are today with the Lakers, and to see. Even just Anthony Davis's performance over the first couple of weeks of the season versus the last week or so. And even Anthony Davis right now, what we've seen the last several games versus, I don't know, the last couple of years in which the Lakers have been waiting for the guy who they thought would be a future perennial MVP candidate to reemerge. And here he is. Will it last? Russ has been solid as a sixth man, um, the, the most expensive sixth man in NBA history, but solid. Um, how long would that last? Health issues for everybody. Well, how long would they last? I, I think this is a very encouraging revival. I have doubts about its sustainability, but I want to actually start with just putting in perspective what we've seen over the last couple of weeks. They have won 8 of 10, yes. But, real quick, in case anybody wasn't paying close enough attention, the first win in that series is against a Brooklyn team that at the time had a losing record. No Kyrie that game, no Ben Simmons that game. And I think maybe still a couple role players out too. So they beat the Nets. Then they beat Detroit, one of the worst teams in the NBA. They then proceeded to beat the Spurs three straight games. The Spurs, who are going to be one of the, at at best, one of the two worst teams in the NBA. Then they beat Portland without Dame Lillard. Then they beat Milwaukee last Friday. Now, that was an eye-opener. That was an eye-opener. That was significant, and that was on the road, and you cannot possibly diminish that even if you think, oh, the Bucks were readjusting to getting Chris Middleton back that night. I <laughs> think that's the best you could Middleton say Middleton played there. pretty well in that game for sure. his first game yeah. back. So legitimate, substantial win. And then the last in the eight out of 10, uh, winning eight out of 10, the last one of those before we record this podcast was them beating the Wizards in Washington. N- you know, the Wizards, not a great team. So out of all I think, think that,
4: and Beal played, I think, three minutes in that game. So
3: Yeah, yeah. and Beale got hurt three minutes in. Yeah. So you've got... Eight out of ten, just asterisks to death. One really good win against the Bucks, and everything else is either caveated or a really crappy team. I you now to be good in this team in this league, you have to first start beating the bad teams. So congratulations to the Lakers. They are now at least back to beating bad teams, which is the first step toward be, being able to beat good to to great teams. Um, the two losses in that eight out of ten, by the way, were to Phoenix a good team that they would have to go through to try to win the West and Indiana, a revived team that is not great though. So those are the two losses there. So let's see, they're still on this road trip where they're going to have to go to Cleveland, Toronto and Philly. When they get home, they're going to play Boston and Denver. I think the true measure is still to come here, but it is encouraging and it's the best we've seen the most encouraging we've seen from them in quite a while. Look, LeBron's still playing at an all NBA level. That's phenomenal. I'm not surprised when healthy, that's what he does. But they still don't... Look, the things that we all flagged, Chris, in the preseason, that scouts flagged, that rivals flagged, not enough shooting, not enough perimeter defense, not enough size next to Anthony Davis. Those things have not changed. The roster is still flawed. So if Anthony Davis can play like an MVP night in, night out, it it will possibly negate some of those deficiencies in the roster but I, I I don't know how sustainable that is I, I I'm look I'm intrigued I, this is why we love sports we have no idea when something like this kind of turnaround can come um so it's fun but I I just don't know what to believe right now yeah you point out the schedule
4: and that's the big you know spotlight for me uh because of the bad teams that they have played and the teams they've got coming up like if the, if we're recording this next week and the lakers have swept their way through cleveland, toronto, philadelphia, detroit on the back end of that headed home to face boston and um and denver it's a different conversation altogether because then they would have romped through this road trip and you'd have to really consider them more than even more than just playoff contenders, first round contenders, then you have to start talking about them as being able to get it together as potential conference contenders. um I, I love what I'm seeing from Anthony Davis. I feel like the last couple of years, we've kind of not not pigeonholed Anthony Davis, but kind of looked at him closely and said he's got to be the best defensive player in the league. He's got to be defensive player of the year for this Lakers team to be successful. No, Anthony Davis at his best is arguably the best player in the league. Still, like he can be that. He has that talent within him. You know, and we've seen that talent. Over the last week, what I love about Davis's play is that he's gotten away from the jump shot a lot more than he used to be. His three-point numbers the last 10-11 games are way down uh, from what they've been in previous seasons. And last year, that shot was a big problem for him. That was one of the reasons he deteriorated overall as a player. To see him going to the basket, finishing at the rim, embracing his physicality, you know that makes Anthony Davis a lot more dangerous. The other things you like, too, is it seems like everybody's shooting the ball pretty well right now. The Lakers as a team right now still rank in the bottom third in the league in three-point shooting. But over the last, like, ten games, you got guys like Lonnie Walker shooting the jumper really well. Russell Westbrook shooting the jumper really well. I wonder how sustainable that is, you know, if you're going to get all these guys shooting high 30s, low 40s some three-point range like these guys have done in recent weeks. So you know, you don't fault the Lakers for beating up on... The teams they're beating up on. This isn't college football or college basketball. You play the team that the NBA schedules you to play. You play everybody. This is just a stretch where they're playing bizarrely the San Antonio Spurs three times in like ten days. Um, But I want to see more over the next two weeks. But if, like AD, apparently you know, based on all the reporting, his back injury, he's moved past the most difficult part of that. Always will be something to watch with him. But if he's healthy. This should not be considered an aberration. Like, the, I don't expect him to get 99 points in back to back games, but can he average 25 to 30 with 10 to 15 rebounds, four or five blocks? Yeah, that's within him to do that. LeBron is still capable of being LeBron. Westbrook, we're kind of reaching the point where you almost expect this off the bench Westbrook to continue. He still has his bizarre moments, and when they lose, It's not all his fault, but sometimes he just winds up taking some bizarre shots in the fourth quarter. But I'm starting to believe that Westbrook off the bench can be a net positive for this team, whereas I never believed that last season and the early stage of this season. So I'm going to give it one more week. I'm going to say, I don't know. I'm going to say no to I don't know right now. But a a week from now, when they get through the, the last four games of this road trip, if they have the same success they've had in the first couple of games... I'll be ready to
3: buy in altogether. So I think the really interesting thing about this is, if you recall in the early part of the season when the Lakers were just abysmal, and the question was to make the Russ trade plus the two picks or not, and the calculus was based on this idea for the Lakers that, well, we don't want to make the deal that sends out the two future first-round picks, these, these golden tickets potentially, Unless it's going to make us a contender. And that was laughable at the time because the idea that sending out Russ and a couple of picks for whoever, Heald and Turner or whatever it was going to be, was not nearly going to be enough to make them a a, a true contender for a title run, a deep playoff run. So the question now, Chris, is if we believe what we're seeing right now, if this is who they really are, and granted, you and I have just listed all the potential caveats, does this then open the door further in fact, for a Russ deal. Like one position would be, well, no, things are going pretty well. Don't mess with it. Russ is actually settling in nicely as the sixth man. Just let, let this thing go. Anthony Davis going to play at this level combined with LeBron. We're in business. Ah, eh, we don't have enough shooting and role players, but whatever. We'll be fine. You could take that or you could say this was the turning point or the kind of play you were looking for to say, wait a minute, maybe we are one trade away. So I'll throw it back to you. If you're Rob Palenka, and you see them playing this way. And if they sustain it through the rest of this road trip, let's say they beat at least Boston or Denver. They're probably not beating both of them. They may not beat either of them. But let's say this encouraging run continues and they beat at least a couple of other good teams along the way. Does this actually make the case for trading Russ for Heald and Turner or whatever the equivalent is? Because now it is, oh, hey, plug a couple of holes, get some more shooting. We actually are in business.
4: Yeah, I, I, it's a tough question. Um I would say that if they're successful over the next couple of weeks, it's probably going to be because Russ has continued to play well. And if you're trading away a guy that's playing well, a guy that's really s performed well in that sixth man role for two guys that are, you know, good fits in that starting lineup, I- I'm not sure how much better you're going to get. It's bizarre. I keep using the word bizarre, but it really is watching the Lakers. It's crazy having this conversation because three weeks ago, four weeks ago, you know Russell Westbrook was a liability with this team. He was a complete net negative. Now he's contributing. He's making perimeter shots. He's making good decisions. He's fit well in that second unit. As we record this right now, I don't know how much better the Lakers would be Swapping Westbrook for heel Turner. And that was a debate even before this this uh you know th- this this recent run of success has been for the Lakers. People are like, well, you don't make that trade and give up two firsts if you're not gonna get that much better. Now I think it's even less likely, Howard, do you make a deal like that? Maybe you're now looking to make something fringier, but as we pointed out, the Lakers don't have a lot of salary to move to to make them better. Like they're not gonna be a player for like Telio Linick in the next couple of weeks because they're not trading away a future first-round pick to go and get him.
3: Yeah, I mean, listen. Um, I don't know that I want to bank on Westbrook being great in this role for the rest of the season. I don't know that I want to... 18 games. That's yeah, a lot. I, I, I don't know how much I trust that, I, and I still think that, that if you're the Lakers overall, if it's a really expensive but fairly effective Russ as sixth man versus... Two high-level rotation players, again, let's say it's Miles Turner and Buddy Heald, the the deal that, you know, they could have had over the summer and maybe still can. If I'm going to get the shot-blocking center who can also shoot threes and the elite three-point shooter who can play guard, I, I still think they're better off with that because those two combined with this version of Anthony Davis and what LeBron already is, like, now you are in business. And I think... Whatever you're giving up on the playmaking off the bet, whatever, you, you can you can find another six-man. You can find a much cheaper six-man. You'll figure out how to plug the hole that Westbrook leaves. He's not the Westbrook of old. This is not like you're giving up an all-star. Um, I still think you're better off fortifying your shooting, your spacing, your shot blocking, everything you would get in that deal. And again, I don't know if this hot streak, 8 out of 10, mostly against bad teams, justifies making that kind of move in a way that the Lakers did not feel was going to be justified before. But it's really made it a more interesting question for them, I think. It, it absolutely has. Um,
4: I, I do think it makes it less likely that they move those two first-round picks, or at least attach them to Westbrook to get Hield and Turner. I, I, I just I don't think it, there's going to be a belief in that Laker front office that the deal makes them that much better that it's worth giving up that kind of capital for the future. But
3: again, this and is... And the a, Pacers aren't going to do it without those picks. Exactly.
4: So. Uh, well, look, this is certainly a conversation we'll revisit maybe as soon as next week. If they have success... <laughs> and the week after, and we the might week after. Be, We might be leading the podcast with uh, with that again.
0: There's no distance too far for the perfect trip. <laughs> Hi, checking in for... Or the perfect table. <laughs> hey, where are you? Coming!
4: All right, um, if you look at the Western Conference standings right now, the Phoenix Suns sit in first place. Not a huge surprise there. The Suns, great regular season team last year. Right below them, Howard, the New Orleans Pelicans, 15-8 to start the season. Third best point differential in the, uh, in the NBA. Second best point differential in the Western Conference. They're getting contributions from everywhere. CJ McCollum has been really strong. You saw Jose Alvarado have a career game the other night. Zion Williamson is playing well. Trey Murphy. Trey Murphy. I was just talking to Tony Bennett, the head coach of Virginia, the other day. Great run for Tony Bennett's guys. Sam Hauser in Boston. Trey Murphy in, uh, in New Orleans. Uh, he's been a, a sniper for them beyond the three-point line. You look at some of the numbers, and the Pelicans are up there in some very key categories. Offensive rating, sixth. Defensive rating, third. Net rating, fourth uh they're top five in points per game field goal percentage steals per game overall plus minus these are numbers that scream contender at you Howard they're not really weak in any particular area so I'll ask you this coming into this season the Pelicans I think a playoff berth would have been a a a satisfactory outcome to this season is this a team that right now is built for more
3: Yeah, I mean, listen, in this conversation about contender, I think we're now using the C word to mean title contender. Um, I thought that the Pelicans had a really good shot to be a top six team, a legit playoff team, not a play-in team before the season started. I was pretty bullish on them, but not so bullish that I thought they had the chance to be top four in the West, but the West has gotten really weird and really fluid, right? Um, It's wide open. The Suns are are the tops in the West, but not by a, a very wide margin. Um, The Nuggets are are hanging around and they're right there. The Grizzlies are right there. The Warriors have recovered. The Clippers, uh, just before we started uh, recording this, the Clippers are getting Kawhi Leonard and Paul George back for the eight billionth time. We'll see how long it lasts this time, but there's a lot of potential candidates to win the West or at least make a run to the conference finals in the West and the Pelicans are now in that group. They are absolutely positively legitimately in that group. So when you say do you how do, you know are they a contender? Right, so here's all the ways in which I would identify like can you define this team as a contender? Um do they have at least one top 10 guy and or multiple all-stars? Yeah, they do. Zion at his best is a top 10 player. CJ McCollum and, and Brandon Ingram are all-star or all-star caliber players. They've got three stars on this team. So yes, they've got the fundamental uh, High-level talent. Um, are you at least a 50-win team? Because teams don't win titles usually from the 40 range. Uh, yeah, they're on pace for 53 wins. So that checks. Um, top 10 defense is almost a must, as we know historically. As you noted, they're top three in defensive rating. They're behind only Cleveland and Milwaukee in defense, in uh, defense, which is astounding. I don't think that's anything people expected from the Pelicans. Top 10 offense, they're 6th behind Boston, Phoenix, Utah, Sacramento, and Denver. Their offense currently ranking ahead of the Warriors, uh, Grizzlies, and Mavericks. Um, And then the last thing is, you know, if you're going to make a deep playoff run, you've got to have somebody who can create and deliver in the clutch. Uh, Yeah, all three other guys can create. Zion, CJ McCollum, Brandon Ingram. Any of those guys can get you out of a jam and manufacture points. So... Yeah, I mean, listen, like they're checking every box, and they've got some great defenders. The only thing I would—if you're trying to find the reason why they wouldn't be able to make a run to the finals, the only thing I can come up with is, you know, there's not a ton of playoff experience, right? Mm. This will be more of an issue when we're discussing them in April than right now. But just as a preview of that, Zion Williamson, zero playoff games in his career. Brandon Ingram, Six. CJ McCollum's got 63, Jonas Valanciunas uh, 54, Larry Nance Jr. 26. But like Trey Murphy, Herb Jones, Alvarado, like these guys, like there's no there's no real postseason experience here. So I wouldn't expect a deep run necessarily. But man, like the, the West is just wide open right now, and and I don't know if it's going to get very uncluttered over the course of the season. I think all these teams are, are kind of evenish.
4: I know the other thing too is they're really deep, like you just mentioned a bunch of guys. Like I didn't even mention Herb Jones. I didn't mention Brandon Ingram, <laughs> even though he's been great this they're season. They're very like, deep. They, they, you look at some of their bench statistics this year, I was looking at them before we started the show. I mean, they're top five when it comes to plus minus with their second unit. The, the, their bench put up big numbers. Like they've got guys um, that they can go to, nine, ten guys that are legitimate NBA players. Um and that's that's valuable. I think you know obviously when we get to the playoffs the rotation's tighten a little bit, but this is a team I think that has some staying power at least in the regular season. Then we'll see. We'll see what happens there. Ingram though, like when I watch Pelicans games, like Ingram you mentioned guys in the clutch. Ingram seems to be the guy they go to most often in the clutch and he's had a lot of success. His clutch numbers are really good. Uh and he's he's been slowly over these last couple of years really establishing himself as an elite scorer. His three-point numbers this year are wild. I mean, three-point numbers across the board in the league. He's shooting, I think, high 40s from three-point range, something like that. Um, if he can keep this progress up, and he's still a young guy, he could be that go-to guy in the playoffs. I mean, McCollum has experience. He can make shots. Zion's a star. But I think you going to need Ingram, who's like that Kevin Durant-like player in terms of physical frame and skill set. You need him to, to be the guy, I think, in the postseason. I think he's shown through the first 20 25 games of this season that there's that potential there. He can be that guy for this team.
3: For sure. For sure. I mean Brandon Ingram's already been, you know, he's he's, he's been an All-Star. Um he's got uh, a lot of tools in in the in the toolbox uh, as they say. Um there's a versatility there and a creativity there. He's not the guy who necessarily is like, get me the ball every time. I'm just going to go like, you know, drop 30, 40 tonight. He's capable of it. He's not, I don't know. He's necessarily built that way in terms of his, you know, I, like, I, I don't, I don't know that you want to do that with him, but you don't have to do that with him. You know, like this is, this is a, a, a super, uh, turbocharged version of an ensemble cast, right? Like Zion Williamson does have top 10 potential and CJ McCollum and Brandon Ingram are both really, really good players who can be an all-star on the all-star team in any given year. Um, But it is kind of like the, you know, the, the, the overall spread of talent and number of different ways you can go with this team that makes them, I think so dangerous. And, and yes, for sure. The depth, Um, like they just, they've got a lot going for them and they've come along, I think more quickly than people thought, they might, and I, I certainly thought it might take some time for them to figure out the pecking order or the distribution between those three stars with Zion coming back to this team. CJ McCollum just got there in February. So they don't have a lot of time together, but I think they're showing pretty great chemistry for a team that's, that's still pretty new to each other. Shout out to David Griffin for building this team.
4: I mean, we say all um, the time, like it, yeah. it's, it's not just about hitting on those top two, three picks. I mean, Zion was a no-brainer a few years ago. Um, Brandon Ingram who they got in the trade for AD was the number two pick a few years before that it's getting Herb Jones in the second round it's getting Trey Murphy it's getting these guys that fill out the roster spots around them that fill the roles Herb Jones one of the best defensive wings in the NBA Trey Murphy shooting above 40% from three I mean this is this is how you build championship level teams and David Griffin uh, has proven once again he's he's well equipped to do that
3: Al- Alvarado is undrafted, right? Yeah. I mean, yeah. like, and by the way, they still have all those future picks from the Lakers. Like they're they getting a swap. Something.
4: They're they're dangerous they, they, in a trade. They, like, they have, I don't want to get into right. that at this point, but like they, they, if they yeah. wanted to, they could go make a play for a big
3: fish that becomes available. And they don't have to, but like, let's say they've got an injury or let's say they've got a chance to just grab, they can get greedy, grab one more all-star, who knows, yeah. upgrade at center, whatever it is. If they need something they have all the tools in the world because they still have all these future firsts and swaps from the Lakers. They've got a future from future uh, first from Milwaukee. Uh, that's from the drew holiday trade oh, two f- f- future firsts from Milwaukee still. Um, Or th- is it three? I think they still have. No, I think they still have all three and swaps. Um, Like they've just got Unbelievable. A, a, yeah. a boatload of stuff. And they, I think they still have all their own picks too. So like they're, they're in great shape to make whatever, Moves they need to if they need to spend a pick here or there. Yeah, I mean, (laughs) Griff has done a phenomenal job. Like the the Lakers got AD
4: and they got a championship. And as we pointed out, AD when he's healthy is still one of the best players in the NBA. But it goes without saying that the Pelicans do that trade
3: ten times out of ten. You know, seven
4: days a week and twice on Sunday.
3: I'm going to say it one more time. I wrote it at the time. The Lakers won the trade and lost the negotiation. They did. They did. They got a title. can't take that away from them, but um, Pelicans are going to be a force for years to
2: come. This is it. We've got an Amex Platinum Pro on our hands, ladies and gentlemen. We haven't seen anyone relax like this before in the Centurion Lounge. Is he connecting to complimentary Wi-Fi? Oh, my. Look at that. He is. All right,
4: a uh, little bit of an issue going on right now in Atlanta. The Hawks sitting at 13-10 and 10, right in the middle of the Eastern Conference playoff field, but The Athletic reported over the last few days that uh, Trey Young and Nate McMillan may not be on the same page. What it comes down to was that Nate McMillan wanted Trey Young to participate in a shoot-around. Trey Young preferred to just continue uh, with treatment on his injury. Uh, according to The Athletic, uh Nate McMillan effectively said you can either come participate and shoot around or you can go home and not come. Trey Young elected not to go to the game that night. The Hawks won that game uh, against Denver. Um, You know, I I don't want to overreact too much to, you know, minor infighting within a locker room because you and I both probably hear stuff like this all the time. Coach doesn't get along with player. Player doesn't get along with coach. Um... Yeah, there's a lot that happens behind the scenes, whether it's in film sessions or shoot-arounds. Disagreements can happen from time to time, especially with strong-willed people like Trey Young and Nate McMillan. Uh, but, I, you know, it did happen, and it's out there, and Trey Young was forced to respond to it on Monday. Um, he effectively said, people don't understand the real story. We're going to keep it private, yada, yada, yada. But a- as you read the situation, Howard, with the information that we have, how concerning is this for the Atlanta Hawks?
3: Uh, you know, this is not a five alarm fire, um, but it, it it's not great. Um, we know that Trey Young, his uh, clashes with or lack of ability to really um, vibe with Lloyd Pierce, you know, caused Lloyd Pierce's firing a few years ago uh, before they hired Nate McMillan. So He's on his second coach, and you know that's not unusual for young stars in the NBA. They usually go through one, one or two before they get to the guy who they really connect with and and have their best years with. But still, you know, Trey Young has been known to be kind of a a, a, a tough uh, tough nut uh, at times. Um, has certainly been a challenge for coaches at times and for teammates at times. All of that uh, has been known around the league since early on, he's 24 Trey. And in his fifth season, this is when you, you hope a guy is kind of trying to, you know, is, is, is able to kind of figure it out and calibrate themselves and, and be their best selves. And, you know, I don't know. I don't know. Since we don't have a lot of detail right now, it's not clear. Like, is this just a miscommunication? Was this him kind of sulking? Was this Nate McMillan's uh, doing more than Trey Young's? You know, where, and we haven't heard from as you and I record this. Nate McMillan hasn't spoken yet today. Trey Young has. Mm. Um, so I don't know. I don't know where to put this other than it's something to keep an eye on, right? Like the the Hawks have kind of flatlined, not flatlined. They've they've plateaued. I should say they made that conference finals run ahead of time. Maybe that went to some guys' heads. Uh, this is a team that's still trying to figure out what to do with John Collins. Like. The 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 John Collins trade watch has been going on since like I don't know the Taft administration. Um, It's it's been a long time, and 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 so there's just I think some you know you know just 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 some weirdness there, and I'm not sure where that goes.
4: Yeah uh what you know the clip of Trey Young having the back and forth with the reporter uh in Atlanta has has kind of made the rounds at this point yep. and and I give actually I didn't mind the reporter's questions I mean you know it I thought they were good questions in fact I you know Trey Young maybe you know we don't know exactly what happened behind the scene but the fact is Trey Young was not at the game against Denver and you know even when you're injured most players, certainly players of Trey Young's caliber, are expected to be there and be supportive of your team. And he did not do that for whatever reason. And I think there does need to be a level of accountability there. If you're, you know, the leader of that franchise, the face of that franchise, you've got to be better than that. I think that's that's what it comes down to. The bigger concern for me is that Trey Young is not having a good year. I mean You look at the numbers, and he's averaging, what, close to 28 points per game? But go take a deeper dive into them, and it's ugly out there, Howard. He's shooting career lows from three-point range and career lows from the floor. He's putting up more shots than he has at any point in his career, and missing more than than he has, uh, at least at a higher percentage. So, like, this is a problem. Like, the... You know, and and I watched bits and pieces of that Nuggets game, and Dejounte Murray was great in that game. Like he was awesome. I think he had thirty four points, eight assists. Uh, played great in, in and that ball was kind of moving around uh, for for Atlanta in that one. That was a a good game for them. One of their better wins of the season. You know, Trey's gotta kind of figure it out. I mean, this team right now you know, officially in the middle of the pack in the Eastern Conference, but. I, you know, if you want to create, like, tiers, it's Boston, Milwaukee, and it's everybody else. And there's a big gap between Boston, Milwaukee, and the Atlanta Hawks right now. And, look, I think the Hawks, during that conference finals run, they had a measure of luck. You know, look, they they won their series, no question about it, but, you know, Kevin Herter needed to play great in that game seven against Philadelphia, and that was a lot about the Sixers and how they kind of imploded uh, in that series. So, you know, if I'm Trey Young... I've got to get my mind right, i have got to get my game right here, because the numbers don't lie. He's averaging almost 28 points per game, but the shooting numbers are abysmal at this point, point. and for this Hawks team to be a true finals contender, he's got to be right up there in the 46% range, 47% range from the field, as he was a year ago. He's got to be high 30s, even low 40s from three-point range, and he's got to figure out a way to gel with DeJounte Murray, which I don't think has really happened at the
3: way the Hawks needed to happen yet. Well, that's the concern, right? Because in the offseason, you know, I think most people, not everybody, but most people liked the move for DeJounte Murray. Most people liked the idea of it. DeJounte Murray is going to come in, take some of the playmaking uh, burdens off, allow Trey Young to be perhaps even more dangerous as a shooter off the ball. Um, certainly provide a lot of backcourt defense that Trey Young does not, provide. And then of course, when Trey Young's on the bench, you've got DeJounte Murray to take up those minutes and and still have elite playmaking out there. Um, I, you know, I'm always curious when you get two guys of that caliber together, and this is the same thing with Donovan Mitchell and Darius Garland or any combinations like this, how do guys manage the, the the, the kind of the shot distribution, right? His usage rate, Trey Young's usage rate is unchanged. So, I don't know if that's necessarily something to worry about or not, but you would have thought that both guys would have come down a little bit as they learn how to kind of share the responsibilities. Um so there's there's that. You noted career low 30% from three, career low 46% from two. Um he's not being as efficient, and I don't know, I haven't gone deeper into it to look. It's like, is is he just not taking the best shots for him? Is he forcing it a little bit? Is this part of the discomfort of sharing responsibilities with DeJounte? So now when he does get the ball, he's forcing shots that he shouldn't be taking. Like I'm not exactly sure where that lies, but um, you know, you would hope the the ideal, of course, is that he has his best year and his most efficient year getting another top-level ball handler and scorer next to him. It shouldn't bring him down. It should, it should make his life easier so that again that's a warning flag to me um and then of course you know behind all of this eventually we get to the mate this is making the uh Luca Trey debate uh spicier every day so um yeah. <laughs> I look there's
4: plenty of time to to write the ship in Atlanta they have had the injuries yes. John Collins has been hurt DeAndre Hunter has been hurt now Trey Young uh is hurt but I I, I Boil it down to this. I'm more concerned with the way Trey Young is shooting the ball than I am with any disagreement with Nate McMillan. Like, Nate McMillan is a very kind of in-your-face type of guy. I'm sure Nate's had, you know, go back to the Seattle days. Nate's, I'm sure, had plenty of confrontations with star players. It happens in this league from time to time. But Trey Young's game, that's concerning, the way his shooting has slipped uh, during the season. All right, I want to finish with a topic that's come up, you know, a little bit in the last couple of months. Uh, Best duo in the NBA right now. Uh, It was back in October that Paul Pierce... Uh, labeled Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown as the best duo in the NBA. A little bit biased. The always objective Paul Pierce. Always objective Paul Pierce. Shout out to Paul Pierce. Uh, But about a month later, Luka Doncic, after playing in Boston, said Jalen Brown and Jason Tatum were the best duo in the NBA. Uh, I'll put it to you. You look across the league. Is there a twosome that you would rather
3: have more than Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown? So – on the list of things I never think about, unless we're doing it on the podcast, this is right up there. So I did the exercise earlier today and I just kind of went through the league and I said, who, who am I, who could I possibly put there? So here's the list of, of of twosomes that definitely are not better than them, but that I at least thought about, you know, kind of great, but but have some deficiency that that uh, keeps them off of their level. Um, by the way, this entire discussion, I'm not even going to talk about the Palo Bancaro bull bull Tandem yet because ah, I just yes. I don't think people can handle that quite yet. But no, you know, put a pin on that one. We'll come back to them one of these weeks. Um, Donovan Mitchell, Mitchell Garland or Mitchell Garland, Darius Garland, Donovan Mitchell. Um, d- you know, defense not there, size issues. So throw them over. You know, throw them t- to the side. Uh, Tatum and Brown obviously better than them. Dame and Anthony Simons, great, but again, defense and size problems. Anthony Edwards, Carl Anthony Towns. We've already seen there are some chemistry issues there. And again, defense, a problem. Put them to the side. We talked about Trey Young and DeJounte Murray. Nice tandem, but defense, a problem. Chemistry, possibly an issue. Zion and Ingram. Yeah, you know, like very good, potent, but not at that level. Ja Morant, Desmond Bain. Bain plays defense. Ja, not as much. A very great young tandem, but still, they don't have the size that that Brown and Tatum do. Jimmy Butler, Bam Adebayo, two-way players, pretty nice one-two punch, but not the offensive capabilities. So put them to the side. Paul George and Kawhi Leonard should be high on this list, but you can you cannot put them on anything until those guys are healthy for more than five minutes in a row. So then you've got these guys. You've got some tandems where it's like the the first guy is so great that it doesn't matter who the second guy is. Like, is Jokic so great that it doesn't matter whether Jamal Murray is back to where he's supposed to be? Giannis and Middleton, Booker, and I guess Chris Paul is the second guy there now, right? Like, we've inverted that. Um, and I'm still going to say that Brown and Tatum are, because of their two-way abilities, their their offensive firepower, their length, I think are better than those those three tandems that I just mentioned. Even though those tandems, are one of them involves Jokic and one involves Giannis, who, between them, have four straight MVPs. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I don't so think That leaves co- Yeah, I don't think close. No, it leaves me with three tandems that you could potentially challenge them with. Number one, Kevin Durant, Kyrie Irving. Now, Kevin Durant is still an elite player in this league, still a, a top whatever you want to make it, and is, is just an offensive machine. You've got a ton of shot making and, and, and shot creation with these two. Durant can can defend at a high level. Kyrie when when motivated, when focused, will defend. But they also got smoked by the Celtics and Tatum and Brown. So I'm going to put them off to the side. Embiid and Harden, Embiid's a perennial MVP candidate. Harden his playoff resume is is just so horrific and he doesn't defend. So I got to put them off to the side. That leaves me with one potential tandem that could challenge Tatum and Brown and it's the tandem that we talked about at the top of the show. How about that Lakers-Celtics rivalry? LeBron and AD, at least as of the last five games, you might have a discussion. Uh,
4: LeBron and AD, because of this past week, were really the only ones, and I had the same list as you did there. I I was a little maybe more bullish on Zion and Ingram, but that may be a recency bias as well because we discussed them playing uh, extremely well. Uh, AD playing like an MVP, LeBron still being pretty close to LeBron of old, you know it, it the question with them is reliability right like we've seen ad do it over a week 10 days let me see him yes. do it over 2 months to 3 months and get back to to being um at that level um I, because of that i don't think it's that close i think tatum and brown are the best duo in the nba by a lot at this moment they're both dynamic offensive players jason tatum might finish this season as the best offensive player in the nba certainly top 2 or 3 in the NBA. He's probably going to average over 30 points per game this season. He's diversified his offense. He's gotten more physical with his offense. The free throw numbers have gone up this year. He is a great offensive player and a vastly improved defensive player. He's probably never going to be elite in the defensive category, but over the last couple of years, and I've watched him a lot, he's really improved. He's really started to use his tools to the best of his abilities, right? He's really long. He can move his feet a little bit. He's got good instincts. He's done that. So he's become... An above-average defensive player, Jalen Brown, uh, better defensive player than Jason Tatum, can defend multiple positions. And offensively, like Jalen Brown can do it all too. Like there's there's nothing. I mean, I wouldn't say there's nothing that Jason Tatum could do that Jalen Brown can't. But look at some of the numbers that Jalen Brown puts up when Jason Tatum's out of the lineup. Like I think it was was it yeah it was Charlotte right? I think it was Charlotte they played against when Jason Tatum was out and Brown went for like 36 in that game In the games of the last couple of seasons that Tatum has missed and Brown has played in, he's averaging better than 30 points per game. So Jalen Brown credit to him has, you know, kind of been willing to take a step back a little bit offensively when he's playing with Tatum, but when he's not, you can see him just taking off. Tatum is a top five MVP player right now, period. Full stop. Jalen Brown, you know, all-star lock at the moment. Um but he's making a strong case in the first month and a half that he's going to get consideration for all NBA. and when you've got two guys doing that type of stuff, putting up fifty, 60 points per game, defending at a good level, uh being available in the way that Tatum and Brown are available on the court there there there's a gap powered between them and everybody else for all those reasons for the best duo in the league. I don't think it's at the yeah. moment, I don't think it's all that close.
3: Yeah. No, for the sake of argument, the LeBron A D thing is is really interesting because LeBron is still playing at an elite sure. level. Yes. And Anthony Davis has gotten back to the guy that we saw flashes of in, in years past. You you gotta sustain it longer for sure. I think, listen, if they do this for, you know, the next month, then you've got a real debate between the two tandems because Anthony Davis, by virtue of his size, provides something that that the two Celtics cannot, right? There's a rim protection factor there and a versatility in terms of the kinds of... of, 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 Now, Brown and Tatum can guard a bunch of different guys, but they're probably not guarding Joel Embiid. Um, Anthony Davis probably would prefer not to guard Joel Embiid. But um, I think by virtue of the size of LeBron and Anthony Davis, I, I could make a stronger case for them... But if they if they continue this, right? They've got to do this for more than, you know, eight out of 10 games against mostly bad competition. So uh, fair, fair determination. As of right now, Tatum and Brown is the best tandem in the NBA. I wouldn't argue it. All right,
4: Howard, I'm going to go work on your uh, video tribute. Uh, but I'm sure next week we'll be back talking
3: Lakers once again. I look forward to seeing my video. A lot of highlights to choose from. Hope you've got a good editor there. And uh, we'll see you next week.
2: From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast
1: is going on a road trip. I thought...